Bethesda Broadcast, episode 23. Today, we have a special guest speaker. Ryan Burkett is the son of our senior pastor, Roy Burkett. Ryan is a senior in high school and gave the message at Bethesda Church a few Sundays ago. You will be hearing Ryan give a message entitled, Living by Example, from 1 Timothy 4.12. We hope you enjoy this special message from Ryan, given at Bethesda Church in Huron, South Dakota. His plan is to attend Liberty University next year, where Pam and I went to school, and prepare for ministry. Uh, he yet does not know exactly what area of ministry he will be involved in, so uh, he has served in various Awana uh, ministries and programs. Uh, he trained with CEF uh, this summer, and so he's trying a lot of different areas, and I think that's wonderful because God can direct him uh, from there. So I just uh, want to give him a warm welcome and uh, to Bethesda as he opens God's word with us today. Give him a warm welcome to Bethesda. Thank you, everyone. It is a pleasure to be here today in God's house, and I do want to personally thank all of you who came out here today. Um, some might have had to travel some distances. I know I called some of you, and it's awesome to see you guys here today. So yeah, so today I thought I would start out with my testimony. Well, I was born in a Christian home in Lynchburg, Virginia, and my dad became a pastor when I was two years old. We lived in a basement apartment at the time. And uh, so I've never known anything other than life in church. Every Sunday, I was in church. And I never once doubted the existence of a God. Nope. But there's one day we had um, something at our church called Judgment House, which is basically kind of like a, a drama where it pictured a few people's life. And I think this one had, was the life of about three people. They were all in the military. One of them was a flat-out atheist, did not believe in God, totally rejected the idea of God. And the second one thought she could get to heaven by being a good person, doing good works, while the third put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and they lived their life, and they all, all three of them died in the field of battle. Well, anyway, after they died, we went to another scene called the judgment scene, and there's a black curtain on one side and a white curtain on the other, and there's a big book in the middle, the Lamb's Book of Life, and whenever God spoke, this big, deep, booming voice, that book would light up, and I was a little freaked out, and yeah, but anyway, first the believer came through, and God said, you know, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And this angel came out of the white curtain, put a robe on him, and ushered him into the white curtain. But then when it was the atheist's turn to come up, you know, God said, you know, you rejected me, and now you're going to get your punishment, basically. And this creature came rushing out of the black curtain and dragged the guy, kicking and screaming, to the black curtain. By then, my knees were shaking. And then the person who thought she was good enough to get to heaven went up, and uh, she was like, but God, I did all these things for you. You know, look what I've done. And God said, depart from me. I never knew you. And she likewise was dragged into the black curtain. And by then, I wanted to get out of there. So, but then the next scene was the hell scene, where it showed what happened to the two people who rejected Christ and their eternity. Then we went to the heaven scene. We were each given a robe and Jesus, I remember the actor who played Jesus, he came over, he held my hands, he looked at me, and he said, my child, welcome home. And I thought, man, I'm not a child of God, I don't belong here. 
And that night when they gave the invitation, I decided to put my faith in Jesus Christ because honestly, I probably relied on having my dad as a pastor and growing up in the Christian family that I was good, you know, in church and everything. But truth was, that didn't cut it, and that's when I put my faith in Jesus. And I have messed up ever since then, you know, majorly and minorly, but God always has my back. He's always there. And uh, I try my best to live my life for him. And here I am today, 18 years old, standing in front of you, preaching a sermon. So yeah, well anyway, my sermon today is over 1 Timothy 4.12. If you have your Bibles, you may turn there. I will go ahead and read. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Now I am 18 years old. Many would consider me to be a youth. Now the book of 1 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul. All right? It was written to encourage Timothy, who was a pastor at the church in Ephesus, and exhort him in the faith, or give him instruction and in wise direction. This was one of Paul's last letters, and it was written anywhere from A.D. 60 to A.D. 66. Now, some versions, like some of you may have a King James version. My version says despise. Other versions say, you know, look down on. You know, that is one of the popular ones. But I found it interesting that this version says despise, which is a stronger word, in my opinion. When I think of despise, I think of, like, utterly dislike with a passion or hate. So that's what I think. I don't think... It's that strong, but that's what I think of when I think of despise. Now, it may have seemed impossible for Timothy to control the attitudes of others since I can't control the attitude of you towards me being youth. He couldn't control the attitudes of others towards him being a youth. It may have seemed kind of hard to do that. But the ones who are older than Timothy could chaff at him at what he had to say because of his youth. They could criticize him for that but he was not to let them do that. He was around 30 to 35 years old at the time. Now you may hear that and say, no, wait a minute, 30 to 35 years old? That doesn't really sound like a youth to me. Well, I have good news for you. The Greek word for youth, neotis, could mean up to 40 years in age. So, yeah, I know you might like that. Some of you out there, you know, so if you're 40 years old, congratulations in Greek culture, you're still a youth. All right. So yeah, but the point is, chronological age does not necessarily bring spiritual maturity. Hebrews chapter 5 talks about craving spiritual milk and how we really should be going after the meat, but we should get the basics first. So chronological age does not bring spiritual maturity. Many of you are familiar with the phrase, act your age, not your shoe size. So yeah, I've heard that one before. So <laughs> yeah, so anyway... The issue for leadership is never age, but spiritual development. True spiritual progress is more than exegetical expertise or even a pastoral degree. It is marked by exemplary conduct and love. Timothy was not to be intimidated by his relative youthfulness or what others might think of it. Instead, he was to demonstrate his maturity by living such a godly life that it would become a pattern for other Christians in every area of his life. Now, just because Timothy was a youth doesn't mean that this verse doesn't apply to those out there who may be older than 40. No, this verse applies to everyone. The youth are to set an example for others. The older ones are supposed to set an example for others and the younger ones as well. All right. Now, you know what? The fact that Timothy was a youth, you know, that caused him to get some criticism. 
But there are other youth who made big accomplishments. I mean, Timothy was to set a Christian example and live a godly life, which may seem kind of hard, but there are other youth who have accomplished other things. Like, for example, Victor Hugo wrote a tragedy at 15, received three prizes at the academy and the title of master before he was 20. John de' Medici was a cardinal at age 15. Pascal wrote a great work at 16. Raphael painted his wonderful works as a young man. Chatterton was unequaled among English poets at 21. And this one right here kind of got me. Joan of Arc did all of her work and was burned at the stake at 19. I'll be 19 in less than a year. And I think she did all that at 19. Wow. And then I also did found some people who are around Timothy's age. Cortez was 30 years old when he stood gazing at the golden treasures of Mexico. Billy Graham was 31 at the time of his new, now famous, Los Angeles crusade. Alexander Hamilton was 32 when he was secretary of the treasury. Billy Sunday left home plate for the pulpit at 33. Thomas Jefferson was also 33 when he drafted the Declaration of Independence. And John Wesley began his real life's work at 35. So there are some examples of some youth who have accomplished big things. Some for God, maybe some not for God. But likewise, everyone is capable of setting an example. A good example and a bad example alike. Now the word example in Greek is tupas, which means, I looked this up, to smite with repeated strokes. Now when I saw it, I'm like, how can that mean example, smite with repeated strokes. And then I thought about it, and then I remember one time we were on vacation, I believe it was in Disney World, and I was kind of acting up, and my dad came in the room, and he had just about had enough of us, and he said, if you don't stop it right now, I'm going to make an example out of you. <laughs> so yeah, I, I stopped. <laughs> and then when I thought about that, I thought, to, to strike with repeated blows, you know, that that kind of reminds me of that. You know, if I wasn't going to obey, he'd make an example out of me, or I'd probably get the belt. So I th that kind of made sense to me. An example could also mean a mark, print, or impression, a figure, a form, an image, statue, a form, manner, or style of a letter or a doctrine, and figuratively of a person as being the form and figure of another, as having a certain resemblance in relations and circumstances prototype, pattern, or model. Now this is the one I want to focus on right here. Having a certain resemblance in relations and circumstances, bearing the form and figure of another. Paul wanted Timothy to be Jesus. He wanted him to become Jesus. Now example doesn't mean that you become something and then eventually it wears off. No, it's permanent. A mark or print or impression that is permanent. Paul wanted Timothy to become Jesus and live out the rest of his days as Jesus would, until the day when he's chilling with his creator in heaven. Okay. Now, living a godly example is not only beneficial to oneself, but also to others. You know, when people see you living a certain way, they say, wow, how, do, how can you live like that? I mean, you're not out partying, drinking, having lots of sex, getting high. I mean, we're living it up, and you're, you're living different, and they think that's cool, a lot of them anyway. Some may not, but some do. And uh, that can be beneficial to others because then that gives you the opportunity to share how Jesus has changed your life and how he can change their lives too. Paul provided five ways of setting a godly example. We can divide these five ways into two categories. The first one is outward characteristics. 
right? Now these are the observable traits, basically. Observable traits. Right? And the first one we will look at, my clicker's not working. Thank you. I guess that's not going to work, is speech. Now, when we think of speech, I guess, next slide, please. It is an outward trait with an inward source. Matthew 12, 34 says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So that means whatever is in your heart, that's what's coming out. Garbage in, garbage out. Something beautiful goes in, something beautiful is going to come out. So if your heart is full of Jesus, if you truly have Jesus living inside your heart, and he's occupying your full heart, then you'll have nothing but good things to say. If Jesus is not in your heart, then you will probably not have some good things to say. Although, you could probably fool people and talk a good game. All right, and we are not to abundantly speak. You know, that means we're not to talk a lot, you know. Don't dominate the conversation. You know, sometimes when we get angry, sometimes we may say things that <laughs> aren't the greatest. I know I have. I think we can all relate to that, you know. And James talks about that. He says, you know, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And when that affects our speech, then it doesn't really benefit those who are listening. Because James chapter 3 also talks about how the tongue is like a spark and a for it can start a forest fire. The tongue is powerful. But we are also not to be apathetically silent. For we can say nothing and we can still be very wicked. Like, let me ask you a question. What is worse? Saying something and then wishing you had not? Or not saying anything and then wishing you had? I'll say that again. Which is worse? Saying something and then wishing you had not said it? Or not saying anything and then wishing you had? When I read that, I was like, wow. You know, that, that really causes you to think. Because there are certainly times when I could have spoken up but didn't. And times when I've spoken up and I really shouldn't have. So yeah. Our words instead are to be honest and loving. Like it says in Ephesians, one of Paul's earlier letters. It says, speak the truth in love. And then later in verse 29, chapter 4, it says, only speak for the benefit of the body, to build each other up. So our words are to be life to each other. Like the song by Toby Mac, speak life. Or the song by Hawk Nelson, Words. Words can build us up, they can tear us down. So those are a couple of good songs that remind us that our words are important. You know, whoever came up with the quote, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, that's one of the biggest lies I can think of. Because I can think of several times when words have deeply hurt me and cut me. And I know there are times I have said words that have deeply hurt and cut other people. Words are important. Be careful how you use them. You know what? There's also another quote in the song. It said, God used words to make the whole universe. Be careful how you use them. So words are powerful. All right, and then the next one Paul talks about is conduct or life. Our actions should be controlled by the word of God. Okay? See, whatever we do, the Bible should dictate how we live our lives. God gave us a book to tell us how to live. It's like directions. You know, like, I think there's a song called, like, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. That's what the Bible stands for. So our actions ought to be controlled by the Word of God. Now, I'm going to do a little math equation here. 
All right? And the first one is speech and words. They're the same. Speech equals word. And then conduct equals actions or deeds and behavior. Now, if you take words plus deeds, then that will yield your whole life or your lifestyle. Your words and your actions make up how you live your life, basically. You know, if you can, look, if you can watch someone, what they do, their actions, and you can listen to how they talk, you basically have their whole life right there. So when Paul says speech and conduct, he's basically saying your whole life. Let your whole life show people what a godly example looks like. All right, and then next we're going to look at the inward characteristics. Speech and conduct were outward, the observable, what people see. Now we're going to focus on what people don't see, our inward characteristics. All right, and the first one is love. All right, and one commentator defined love. I thought this is appropriate for this text. This is the definition he gave for love. Love is the Holy Spirit's action in our life, the evidence of our relationship with the God who rules. And I thought that was very good. The Holy Spirit's action in our life, the evidence of the relationship of the God who rules. Remember, Paul said that if you have love, you have nothing. So love is very important. You know, and something else about love, the Greek translation for love in this text is agape. There are several translations for love, but this text uses agape. And um, there are three definitions of agape that apply to this text. Three types of love. The first one is the love we have from God. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, not meaning world, the planet, but world meaning everyone he's ever created. All of you here, everyone who's died in the past, everyone who is going to be born in the future, God loves every single one of them with an everlasting love. He's loved them so much, he sent his son to die for them. And then there's Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, and I find it hard to believe that someone who loves us would die for scum like me. Because I've done some pretty rotten stuff in my life. And I can say the same for all of you. I don't know what you've been through, but God loves you anyway. No matter what you've done, there is nothing God can't forgive except blaspheming the Holy Spirit, but that's another sermon. All right. And then the next love is the love we have for God. Now this love basically says that, you know, we love God by our actions. You know, God said that he who has love, you know, love comes from the Father, and if we have love, then we have the Father. So basically, if we show our love for God by obeying him, by our actions, you know, how we talk, how we walk, you know, just like Paul is saying here, then that shows God we really love him. If we love him, we will obey his commands. And then the third type of love is the love we have for others. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and whoever loves is from God. So, when we love others, that is showing them the love of Jesus. You know what? We grew up, we grew up in an age today, in a world where people are very cruel. Children are abused by parents, physically, sexually, verbally. 
And it is our job as Christians to love them. You know what? When we say we have the answer, we have Jesus, and what they need is Jesus, and then we yell at these kids. Like, I've been at camps before where counselors would yell at kids, and I'm like, man, don't do that to them. You know, I was a Native American camp. I was a counselor doing that. And I'm like, man, don't do that. These kids probably get enough from their parents. And we tell them that what they need is Jesus, and we have Jesus. We can give them Jesus. They see us act like this, like, man, how are you any different from us? And then they'll usually blow it off. And we have potentially ruined the possibility of someone coming to Christ because of not showing them love. All right, and then the next thing Paul talks about, the fourth one, I believe, is faith. Now, faith is a big one. Faith and love often go together. Right? Faith and love pretty much encompass all of what we believe as Christians. And faith, there are three forms of faith that I have found. There is faith in God for salvation. Paul wrote to Ephesians earlier in a letter, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, not by works, so that anyone can boast. It is the gift of God. Works will not cut it, people. I was deceived into believing that as a boy. People think if they do enough good things that they can buy their way into heaven, but no one can. Romans 3.10 says that no, there's no one righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one does good. Not even one. It's right there in black and white in the Bible. Works will not cut it. Only faith in Jesus Christ who willingly died on the cross to save you and I from everything wrong we've ever done, every sin we've committed. He took it upon himself on the cross, willingly shed his blood, was buried, and rose again three days later. Only something God could do. No one else has ever raised himself from the dead except for Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. The second type of faith is faith in God for everyday needs. You know, I trust God for my every breath, every day. I have faith that God will provide me with food, clothes, love, <laughs> shelter. God cares about our every needs. The Bible says that, you know, not one sparrow hits the ground that he doesn't know about. He knows how many hairs are on our heads. Some less than others, but he knows. He loves us that much. So we have faith in God for our everyday needs. And then the third type of faith is faithfulness, loyalty or trustworthiness to God and the church. Now being faithful to God, there are lots of people who are faithful. People serve God with their lives. People die for God. You know, I once heard a story when I was in seventh grade of, uh, I really don't know the situation, I just vaguely remember it, but I think it was Muslims. They had these converts come and they told them to spit on the Bible. And the first person who went up, he spit on it, whispered a quiet prayer saying, sorry Lord, and walked away. Well then a little girl went up and she started to wipe the spit off that Bible. And as she did it, she was shot on the spot. 
People have died for their faith. They love the word of God so much that they're willing to die for it. You know? So that is faithfulness to God and the church. Now, loyalty and trustworthiness, too. That means that once we enter the faith, there should be no going back. You have to follow through all the way to the end. Trust in God. Follow his word. It will be hard. I am not going to say that once you become a Christian, life is handy dandy. No. It will be hard. Anyway, it's been hard for me at times, too. But he is faithful. And you know what? That reminds me of a poem, actually. How many of you have heard a poem about the Jesus walking with the man on the beach and then two sets of footprints and then later he saw one? Anyone heard of that? Yeah, well, here's how it goes. This man, after he died, he looked back at his life and his walk with the Lord and he saw it as footprints in the sand. Two sets of footprints. One were his, one were Jesus. Anyway, one day when he, he looked and he saw a rough spot in his life, a very hard time he was going through. And then he saw only one set of footprints. And he said, Lord, why is it when I went through this really tough time in my life, you left me? Why'd you abandon me here? And Jesus said, my child, I love you so much. I did not abandon you there. I was with you. There it was I who carried you. When I read that, that really got to my heart right there. And honestly, it still does. God carries us through the hard times. As long as we are faithful and trustworthy and are loyal to him and him only. You know what? Faith is central to all of life. For example, you go to a doctor whose name you cannot pronounce and whose degrees you have never verified. He gives you a prescription you cannot read. You take it to a pharmacist you have never seen before. He gives you a chemical compound you do not understand. Then you go home and take the pill according to the instructions on the bottle, all trusting in sincere faith. Now, you know what? It can be like a disease, you know? that faith is the answer to, you know? The person who took that bottle and took the pills, he was obviously sick, and he knew he needed something to make him better, to heal him of the disease that he had. And you know what? That disease we have today is called sin. Some of us know we're sick. Some people know the world is messed up and that we're sinful, we're pretty bad, but there are some people who don't believe they're sick. So therefore, they take the pills and they won't, they won't take them. But those who recognize that they're sinners, that there's a problem, that they need to be healed and forgiven, they need the medicine, Jesus is that medicine. They just have to have faith in him to take it, even though they may not know the doctor, his degrees, the pharmacist, the chemical compounds, all trusting in sincere faith. So that is what it's like when you put your faith and trust in Jesus. It's like taking pills at you. Don't know whether they'll work or not, but Jesus will always work. Now this, this next point here is very, very important. And I'd like you to write this down if you can. The next slide, please. Faith always leads to faithfulness. I don't know how well you can read that. Probably should have made it darker. But faith always leads to faithfulness. You know, once you put your faith in Jesus... He will help you be faithful. Faith always leads to faithfulness. 
And then the next one Paul talks about is purity. Now there are two types of purity here that he is referring to. The first one is sexual purity. Sexual purity is a symbol of spiritual consecration. Misconduct in this area of life ruins fellowship with Christ and destroys a person's influence and reputation with others. Authentic spirituality cannot be separated from inner righteousness. Christianity, which is honest and genuine, envelopes the entire person from inner heart and spirit to outward behavior. Another commentator, I didn't have it written down here, another commentator said that the sexual relationship is a mysterious relationship in that of the person with the opposite sex, but also with God. He did it as a way to where he learned to honor others and also honor him. Right? And also, I find it interesting because Ephesus was a center, a center for sexual impurity. So Timothy was constantly faced with temptations. He was to keep himself pure in mind, heart, and body. Now we're thinking of the world we live in today, in Ephesus back then, a center for sexual impurity, and Paul demands this of him. Well, God demands of him too, but Paul's instruction in this, I mean, man, that had to be some pretty hard. Faced with temptations day after day after day. It could have been easy to just give up, but he didn't. So God demands sexual purity from us. A relationship with one person of the opposite sex for life. And then the next one, the second form of purity is integrity of heart. Now when I first saw that, I'm like, integrity of heart, you know, I've heard the term integrity before, and I'm sure I've used it too, but what exactly does integrity mean? So I looked it up on the internet, and uh, I found three definitions for integrity, and we'll go over them right here. The first one is adherence to moral and ethical principles, soundness of moral character, honesty. So God desires integrity of heart, so according to this definition, God wants our hearts to be moral and ethical, to follow his guidelines and principles that he's clearly laid out for us in his word here. And he wants our hearts to be full of character and honesty, open and honest, ready to share our lives and our love with others. Second definition is the state of being whole, entire, or undiminished. Now, it's interesting that it says that, whole, entire, undiminished. God wants our whole heart, not parts of our heart. That's why Paul encompassed all of life in those five principles. God, you know, we can't give God some of our heart and keep some of it back. Like, oh, you know, God, I'll, I'm willing to give all this to you, but this, you know, the speech, you know, I, I, I like to talk like this, and when I get angry, you know, I just gotta say something, you know, and I, I want to tell those dirty jokes to people, you know, I, I want to talk like that, and we shouldn't be doing that. Or maybe it's the next one, you know? Maybe it's love. You know, God, I, I'll give you my whole heart, but love, I can't do that. There's this one person over here. He did this to me, or he did this to me, and I just cannot bring myself to love him or forgive him for what he did to me. Or maybe something like that. Or maybe you can't forgive God for something you feel like he's done in your life. Or maybe it is... Something else. Purity. You know, God, I'm willing to give you all this, but purity, you know, I, I want to do, do it my way. I want to do it.
do all this my way. Do relationships you know, over here. You can have the rest of my heart, but my relationships and how I spend my time with other people of the opposite sex, you know, one-on-one, whatever, that is all, you know, up to me. But we shouldn't do that. God wants our whole heart, all of it, not part of it. And then the last one, sound, okay, sorry. Yeah, sound, unimpaired, or perfect condition. So basically, God wants our hearts to be perfect, sound, unimpaired. He doesn't want our hearts to be skewed by anything of the world. He wants it in perfect condition. David was known as a man after God's own heart. That is exactly what God desires for every one of his children. A whole heart who wholly seeks after God, hearts that go after his heart. So when we go through our week, we can remember these five principles. And honestly, as I read this verse, this stuff I got to work on too. You know, I found some stuff to be very convicting. And I even questioned a time or two if I was even fit to preach this. Because I'm like, I don't got it down. You know, no one really has it down. But the point is, not to get it down perfect. We will never be perfect, but we should strive for perfection because that's what God desires. And he will work in us despite our imperfections, our shortcomings, and our failures. He will be with us because he loves us. He will never leave us. He will carry us. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. If you'd like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check out our website at www.bethesdamb.com. Have a great day.